John chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 45 to the end of the chapter this morning. This is after Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. I'll pick up the reading in verse 45. This is the 1995 New American Standard updated edition. Poor Dale. They threw a curveball at him on Bible Gateway. John chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done, namely raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which He had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and he went up to Jerusalem out of the country. I'm sorry, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests. And the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. This is God's word. Let's ask him for help. O Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would give us understanding into this passage that you breathed out through the pen of your servant John so many years ago, thousands of years ago so that we might have it in our laps, that we can read it, understand it as revelation from You. We just sang, indeed prayed as we were singing, Speak, O Lord. And so we ask that You would speak to us through Your Word and work through Your Word to draw the unrepentant to faith in the Lord Jesus and to build up and strengthen Your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In case you hadn't noticed, conspiracy theories are quite popular these days. Between a combination of the internet uh, making information somewhat egalitarian that anybody can put out information there, if you get enough followers, you can have a place at the table that is at least until the big tech companies shut you down. 
Also, on the other hand, you have the reality that the art of journalism has fallen on hard times where journalists used to be out to pursue and seek the truth and communicate the truth. But these days, that just so much of mainstream journalism and media has just become an echo chamber to promote certain ideologies. And if you're a Christian... You have a biblical worldview and framework that helps you to understand man's depravity and sinfulness and the reality of unchecked power can do great evil. And so as a result of that, there's many conspiracy theories out there. So the rest of this morning, we're going to talk about QAnon. Just kidding. (laughs) But there is a great conspiracy that takes place here in the Gospel of John. A great conspiracy, because the word conspiracy carries the idea of plotting, planning, and usually in a secretive manner, some kind of evil or some kind of malice that that is being concocted. And this is what we see taking place in the Gospel of John, a kind of backroom conspiring against the Lord Jesus Christ. And this to be sure, highlights the the nature of man's wickedness and depravity because Jesus has just done an amazing miracle in their midst, right? John chapter 11, Jesus has brought Lazarus back from the dead. And we would think, uh, you know, reading that, we would think everybody would have believed in Jesus. But that's not what happens. Some, yes, do believe in Jesus, but some double down even harder in their unbelief and resolve to put Jesus to death. So in our passage, we're going to see three different responses to Jesus, and then we're going to look at three different applications of this. Let's pick up the story in verse 45. The first response to Jesus is what we might call the convinced In verse 45, it says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. So there was many people, remember Bethany, where Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, was just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And uh, and there was people who had come from Jerusalem to console Mary and her sister Martha, concerning the death of Lazarus. And these were the folks who who actually followed Mary when she got up to go see Jesus. And, And so they were there. They witnessed Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, coming out of the grave. And as a result of this, they believed. They put their faith, their trust, their confidence in the Lord Jesus. Now, if you're a careful student of the Gospel of John you realize that not every time John mentions somebody believing is it genuine belief. In fact, in John 2.23-25, through 25, it speaks of Jesus doing many miracles at the Passover, and many believe because of the signs that Jesus did. But then the text goes on to say, but Jesus did not believe in them. 
And so it becomes obvious that this was a kind of a belief that was not a genuine belief. But here in this context, there doesn't seem to be any reason to suspect that this is genuine belief, especially because it's contrasted with, with the unbelief of the leadership of Israel, the, 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 uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as we'll see. And then in verse 46, it says, Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So there's a group there who were there to witness the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They're on board. Jesus, I'm with you. They're trusting in Jesus. They're believing in Jesus. They're ready to follow Jesus. But then there's some who go and tell the Pharisees. Now, parents, if you're looking for a verse about tattletaling... You're probably not going to find it in a concordance, but here is a clear instance of tattletaling, right? These guys witness Lazarus coming out of the grave. I mean, I mean, this is a tremendous thing. And they know that the Pharisees don't like Jesus. We saw that in chapter 9 and chapter 10 where Jesus healed the blind man and they investigate that miracle. They were able to see that it was a genuine miracle. And so what do they do? They kick the blind man out of the synagogue. And so these people, they go and tattletale on Jesus. Jesus, you'll never believe what He did. He brought Lazarus out of the grave. And you think, I mean, what, what kind of dastardly deed did Jesus do for them to tattle on on him? What kind of malice did he concoct? He brought his friend back to life at a funeral. I mean, this is shocking here. It's almost humorous if it wasn't so sinister. And so we we have the, the convinced, and so this leads us to the next category, the killers, in verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. And they were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So these handful of people who go and tattletale concerning Jesus to the Pharisees, this provokes the Pharisees and the chief priests to come together. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the Pharisees and the chief priests were normally uh, enemies of one another. I mean, this is like the Democrats and Republicans coming together in one meeting. The the Sadducees, the chief priests, which would have consisted uh, almost certainly of uh, exclusively people from the sect that was called the Sadducees, these were of the more theologically liberal camp. These guys did not believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in the afterlife, they didn't believe in angels and the supernatural. They, they only seemed to accept the first five books of the Bible uh, as to be Scripture. And, and then you had the Pharisees. These were the more conservative group. They believed all the first 39 books of the Bible. They were very meticulous on obeying the Scripture. They were concerned about any kind of Gentile and pagan influence amongst God's people. But what they both had in common was they hated Jesus. And so they actually conspire together. They convene a council. Now, the 
this council was uh, in the Greek it literally reads the Sanhedrin. So this was, if not the entire Sanhedrin, the entire kind of ruling body of uh, of of elders in ancient Israel. It was a kind of a committee amidst that ruling body. So, so what John is communicating here, this is this is moved, this is escalated up the ladder. This has gone straight to the top of the most elite ruling class in Israel. They are discussing this matter of Jesus and what to do about it. This is not some low-level think tank. This is up top here planning. And they're concerned. What are they saying? Say They say, in verse 47, what are we doing? This man is performing many signs. Now this is fascinating. They, they don't question the legitimacy of Jesus' miracles, right? They don't say, you know, he's, uh, you know, these are all fake. They, they couldn't deny it. In fact, we saw in chapter 9, they, they had a whole interrogation of the man who had been born blind. They investigated And the conclusion was, indeed, according to his parents, he was born blind, but now he can see. They couldn't deny the miracles that Jesus did. So what they would basically say is he's, he's demon-possessed. He's a Samaritan, demon-possessed. He, he, he does these miracles, but, but they're by the power of Satan. Their concern in verse 48 is that if we let this keep going on, everybody's going to believe in Him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, and our nation. The concern is that Jesus and His followers are going to gain momentum and that this is going to provoke a Roman response. And the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take away everything we have here. Now there's probably a play on words here. Because they're concerned that the Romans will take away our place and our nation. Now, most often place, when it's combined with nation, throughout the New Testament speaks of the temple. That was their place. But, but I can't help but think that there's a play on words here because place in Greek, as in English, can sometimes mean a particular geographical plot or it can mean a person's position or status. And so they're concerned about, yes, the place of the temple, but more importantly, they're concerned about their place, their status, their power, their position, their grip over the people. And so, how do you get people to do, to go along with crazy ideas? Well, you provoke fear in their heart and desperation. And you can get them to do most anything. And so, they fear mongered. If we don't do something about this, who knows what's going to happen? The Romans will come in and destroy this, and there's going to no longer be a temple. There's no longer going to be a people of Israel, a nation. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So amidst this elite group of leaders, 
the chief priests who would have consisted of probably former priests of the high priestly family also would have included members of the Sanhedrin. Out of this group, one of them begins to speak up. His name is Caiaphas. Josephus, the Jewish historian of this time period, identifies him as Joseph Caiaphas. He's considered to be high priest that year. Now, high priest, uh, under the uh, Old Testament law, these were the successors of Aaron. Aaron functioned as the kind of high priest. Remember, amongst the Levites, amongst one of the twelve tribes of Israel, you have the Levites, and it was out of the Levites that came the priestly group. These were the people who did the work in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. But out of those priests, there was the high priest, namely the, the most important priest, who he had certain special duties, especially on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Yom Kippur, where he would go into the most holy place and offer a sacrifice on behalf of Israel. And so it was a very elite, prestigious position. Now, we, we also know that Caiaphas, I mean, it, it was he was part of a group of former high priests in his own family. His father-in-law was named Annas, who had previously been the high priest. And so here Caiaphas, he's going to speak up in the midst of this group, and you can see how humble a guy he is, you guys know nothing at all. You guys, you don't have a clue. Let me drop some knowledge on you here. He's going to tell them what's up. Verse 50. He's saying, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So Joseph Caiaphas stands up and says, Don't you guys understand? Sacrifices need to be made. Sometimes a dirty deed must be done for a greater good. Sometimes it's necessary to sacrifice one life to save many lives. It's pragmatism, right? It's the great American philosophy. You need to do what works regardless of whether it's right or wrong. Verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. This is John now recording this, saying this. He did not say this on his own initiative. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And this is remarkable here. John records that this Joseph Caiaphas, he prophesied that year... He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He would die for the people, but not only for the people, but for the scattered children of God. And and this is one of those passages that is a great irony in the Gospel of John. It's a great irony because that's not what Joseph 
Caiaphas meant by this prophecy. Now, a little bit of background. It was known that the high priest would commonly have a function like a prophet in that office as high priest. In fact, um, you remember in the Old Testament, the, the uh, Uman and the, the, the Thuman, uh, the lots that, that, that would be cast on, upon the breastplate of the high priest, um, that, that it was often the high priestly office was often connected with giving revelation from God. And, and it, it, it would seem that Caiaphas here claim this as a prophecy. Now, we don't know for sure whether he self-consciously claimed this as a prophecy or whether John is recording this was a prophecy, but I tend to think that he was claiming this as a prophecy. In a tremendously accurate prophecy, just not in the way that Caiaphas intended it to go. Because Caiaphas... His thinking, his planning was that Jesus would die and this would be on behalf of the good of God's people, the nation of Israel. But John's interpretation, ultimately God's interpretation in this prophetic utterance is that Jesus is going to die as a substitute on behalf of His people. Caiaphas thinks by making this prophecy that It's about murdering Jesus on behalf of the people of Israel and the scattered diaspora. But God takes Caiaphas' words and uses them for His good purposes. Arthur W. Pink says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. Strikingly was this illustrated here. Caiaphas was actuated by political expediency. The Lord Jesus was to be a state victim. Little did he know the deep meaning of the words that he uttered. It is expedient for one man to die for the people. Little did he realize that he had been moved by God to utter a prophecy in honor of him whom he despised. What, he, what we have in this verse and in the one following is the Holy Spirit's parenthetical explanation and amplification upon the saying of the high priest. This is amazing that this high priest in his diabolical intentions winds up uttering a statement that in a very real sense is the core of Christianity. Namely, Jesus dying in the place of, on behalf of his own people. I mean, this is shocking here. Verse 53. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. From that day on, from this meeting on, they, meaning the Pharisees, And the chief priests conspired together to have Jesus murdered. What tremendous evil this is. Again, think of the context. Jesus has just brought somebody back from the dead. Instead of bowing the knee to Jesus and saying, Oh, what must I do to be saved? Oh, who is this Jesus? Maybe being curious about Him. 
Maybe we need to investigate this a little bit more. They doubled down in their hardness of heart. They saw their power being threatened and they concocted a plan to eliminate the problem. Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but he went away from there to a near uh, went away there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So Jesus, upon the knowledge of this, this plan to have him murdered, he lays low. But notice, I want you to notice the first word of it, verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly. That's one of those statements that's easy to gloss over, isn't it? But what does this suggest about Jesus? That while this meeting was behind closed doors, in quiet and private, the ears of omniscience were in that room. And Jesus heard everything that was being conspired. Jesus being a real human who wept as we saw in the previous chapter, but also having a divine nature that knew exactly what was being plotted against Him. And knowing that His time had not yet come, He laid low for just a little bit longer. So we have the convinced, we have the killers, and then we have the curious in verse 55 and following. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So John gives a calendar note here that the Passover of the Jews was near. This is now the third Passover in the Gospel of John. This will be the last Passover. The last Passover Jesus partakes in and ultimately I would suggest the last Passover ever because the Passover lamb was heading to Jerusalem, namely Jesus. And there's many who are purifying themselves. They've gone through this uh, purification process prescribed in Leviticus so that they can make sure that they can properly come into the temple and bring their sacrifices. So they're traveling to Jerusalem and then they're in Jerusalem, they're in the temple, and they're looking for Jesus. These folks are curious about Jesus. They don't see him anywhere around. They say maybe he won't come. They know the conflict he's having with the religious leaders. And so these folks, they're, 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 they're kind of like the, the, the folks who cause the rubberneck traffic after an accident. You know what that is, rubberneck traffic. You know, when there's an accident that's happened on the road, but it's been cleared off, it's off to the side, nothing's obstructing the, uh, the, the road, but people are driving like 10 miles per hour. Oh, what's that over there? Oh, look, you know, the, that's the rubberneck traffic. Well, you know, they're, they're just staring at the wreckage. 
These are folks that were interested in the wreckage that happened between Jesus and the Pharisees. They're curious about Jesus, but they're not really believers. What do we take away from this passage? Let me leave you with three applications. First two for those who are not believers and the last one for believers. The first application, stop asking for evidence. Did you notice in the passage, I mentioned it, Jesus did a miracle of bringing somebody back from the dead. I mean, I mean that's, that's pretty significant. You, you, you think that's evidence for who Jesus is as the God-man, as the one who is the, the, the revelation of God? I, I think so. And yet we see clearly in the text, while some do believe, many still did not believe. And even amongst the religious elite, those who should have known better, the evidence was right before their eyes. They tried to do away with the evidence. You see, the human heart, because of the effects of of sin upon the human heart, it will always take whatever evidences are given and will interpret those evidence to suit one's own desires and often even sinful lifestyle. Nobody is an unbeliever because of a lack of evidence. Unbelievers do not lack information. They lack a heart transformation. In fact, the Apostle Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about all of creation screams out evidence. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes and eternal power have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That the world around us screams out glory to God and the wisdom and the goodness of His creation. It screams out who He is. That that alone is enough to damn a person to hell for refusing to believe in the true and living God. So friend, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, if I just had a little bit more evidence then I would believe in Christianity. Then I would trust in Jesus. Friend, it's never going to come because it's already came. Now that's not to say that we, we, we ought not to give answers and try to help somebody who's not a Christian to understand those evidences and whatnot. But nonetheless, we ought not to think that the evidences can actually transform a person's heart. The Holy Spirit of God has to subdue the rebellious heart to rightly understand and believe those evidences. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, 
couple hundred years ago said, desperate wickedness of man's natural heart. A mighty miracle was wrought within an easy walk of Jerusalem. A man four days dead was raised to life in the sight of many witnesses. The fact was unmistakable and could not be denied. And yet the chief priests and the Pharisees would not believe that he who did this miracle ought to be received as the Messiah. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they shut their eyes and refused to be convinced. This man, they admitted, does many miracles. But so far from yielding to this testimony, they only plunged into further wickedness and took counsel to put him to death. Great indeed, is the power of unbelief. Great indeed is the power of unbelief. The signs are indicators that point to Jesus, but you have to ultimately believe in Jesus. You think of Jesus when He gave that parable in Luke chapter 16 of the two men who, who died and one who went to a place of torment the other one who went to Abraham's side and, and the one who's in the place of torment begs for Abraham to send Lazarus, the man who's in the place of paradise at Abraham's side, send him back to my brothers that they would hear and repent and believe. Do you remember what Abraham said? They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. So, stop asking for more evidences. Believe the evidence is there. And then you'll begin to understand the evidence, the reasonability of Christianity. But not only... Stop asking for evidence. Secondly, stop fighting against God. Because you won't win. You will not win. This is a boxing match that doesn't go well for you. I mean, look at what Caiaphas is doing here. He thinks he's got it all figured out. You guys don't know anything. Let me drop some knowledge. Let me tell you. Let me give you the lowdown on what's going to happen. How we're going to win this deal. He thinks he can win. He thinks he can beat Jesus. And yet in his very plotting and conspiring this wicked deed of the murder of Jesus, He's laying the very foundation of Christianity for thousands of years to come. This is always God's way. He almost seems to have fun with it. Remember Haman in the Old Testament, the Hitler of the Old Testament in the book of Esther? Remember the story of Esther where... uh, you know, the, the king Ahasuerus, he, he gets rid of his wife and, and eventually Esther becomes queen. But, but, but all throughout this plot, there's this wicked Haman who hates Mordecai. He hates God's people. He wants to commit genocide to have all of God's people utterly obliterated. And he concocts, he conspires this evil plot for the destruction of God's people. And, and he even it would appear in his backyard builds this great 
gallows to impale Mordecai on. You remember how the end of the story that goes, right? It's not Mordecai impaled, but it's Haman impaled. And this winds up an opportunity for God's people to root out all the opposition in the great Persian Empire against them. All this plotting and conspiring and concocting and trying to rail against God and His people and ultimately God and His sovereignty uses it for His good purposes. There's a story in Scottish church history and Scottish Presbyterianism the Scottish Presbyterians, the way in which they would practice church discipline would be when, when a person had repented of their offense that they were under church discipline for, there was what was called a repentance chair that was up front. And uh, they would sit in that repentance chair and make their public confession and, and be restored to the fellowship. Well, there was one particular occasion which a Scottish nobleman was visiting the church and he evidently wasn't familiar with, uh, with Scottish Presbyterian church order. And so he's visiting this church and he looks at this seat up front and he says, well, this looks like an important seat for a nobleman and after all, I'm a nobleman. And so he comes up front and sits in the repentance chair. A great reversal. We see this throughout the book of Acts. As, as you think, how does the gospel spread throughout the book of Acts? God takes the persecution of God's people as they're being hunted down and persecuted, so they just start running. And they're telling people about Jesus as they're running. And they're spreading the gospel throughout Samaria until the uttermost ends of the world as they're running from their persecutors. In other words, God used the wicked and evil intentions of these persecutors hunting and chasing down God's people for His good purposes. One person who may be most responsible for the establishment and propagation of the gospel in England during the English Reformation was a Roman Catholic woman by the name of Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary. We say, how did that work out? Did she get converted? No. She diabolically sought to put to death every faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ she could. And she did so publicly. And this became a shining moment for those English reformers because there was some suspicion up until that time. Were these guys just in it for the money? Were they in it for the power? But they saw those men burned alive. And they said, wow. Maybe we should listen to what they have to say. And they saw the cruelty and the wickedness of this woman in executing so many people that England didn't want to have anything to do with Roman Catholicism probably for a hundred years after that. 
God used this wicked, diabolical, bloody Mary for His good purposes. So my friend, if you're here this morning and you're fighting against God, your arms are too short to box with God. You're like the little four-year-old swinging at his 12-year-old brother as that brother just has his hand out and you're swinging and you're swinging and you can't land a punch. So better to repent and submit to Him. To turn and subject your will to His will. To trust in the Lord Jesus as your only hope to be accepted before God. To lay down your weapons of warfare and repentance and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm done fighting against you. I enlist in your army. And He'll take you. He'll forgive you of your foolishness and thinking you can fight against Him. Well... Stop asking for more evidences. Stop fighting against God. Thirdly, start trusting God. Everything in this passage demonstrates God's sovereignty at work for the good of His people through the wicked choices of men. Did you get that? God working for the good of His people through the wicked choices of men. In the wonder and mystery of God and His almighty character, He is somehow able to exercise His sovereignty over evil without having a hand in the evil. So he himself is not the agent of the evil, but he exercises his oversight over the evil in such a way that it does exactly as he purposes for his good designs and his good purposes despite the responsible, wicked actions of men. And this is what we see in this text, is it not? We see this backroom conspiring the murderous plot of the religious leaders and the clock is going exactly as God designed. Exactly according to His sovereign will, albeit against His good character, namely the murder of an innocent man, namely the murder of the most righteous man who ever walked the face of the earth. This is the testimony of Scripture, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered over by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of godless men. They're responsible. These are wicked, godless hands. But nonetheless, it was the definite plan of God. We ought to pray like the early church in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 28. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? Why and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, uh, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. Quoting from Psalm two, and then they say, For truly in their, this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and we could include, and Caiaphas, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. It was all according to plan. Does that mean that Caiaphas was not responsible? No. Does that mean that Herod was not responsible? No. Does that mean that Judas was not responsible? No, 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 no. All were responsible and will have hell to pay. But, not according to their will, but according to the good will of Almighty God, it happened exactly as He intended. God can shoot straight with a crooked stick. That's how he rolls. He's pretty good at it. But it's not like God is reacting to these situations and saying, let me clean up this mess here. No, no. This is is His purpose from before the creation. In the infinite majesty of His wisdom that unfolds in human history. And somehow it involves the responsible choices of men and women and all of it's according to God's sovereign design. And you say, well, how does that work out? God somehow being sovereign over it and, and, and men and women making real choices and decisions? I don't have the slightest clue. I, I have no idea. And yet it's taught over and over in Scripture. I could show you a hundred passages over and over. Both of these truths side by side. Somebody asked Spurgeon one time, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? He said, I don't reconcile friends, I reconcile enemies. They're not enemies, they're friends. J.C. Ryle says God can make the designs of His enemies work together for the good of His people and cause the wrath of man to praise Him. So friend, apply this specifically to your life. What, What have you been going through? What evils have you been encountering? Think of all that we see in the world today. All the, 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 the chaos that exists in our country. And, and it seems like it's out of control. And from one angle it is. But from another angle, it's exactly according to plan. Christian friend, you don't have to fret in the midst of strange, chaotic times. I'm not saying don't be concerned. I'm not saying don't grieve over the direction of our country. But what I am saying is you don't have to fret. It's all in the plan. It's all according to God's design. And wonder of wonders, God in His infinite ability, He 
marshals the entire universe for the good of His people. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Friend, you can be certain that God, whatever cosmic things are going on, whatever personal things are going on, God is at work behind the scenes in them for your good. You can trust Him. He knows what He's doing. It was John Newton who said he would never try to change any of God's providential dealings in his life. He would just screw it all up. That should be our posture. And we trust God in the midst of whatever suffering or evils we are encountering. If God worked was at work in the most evil plotting in human history, the murder of Jesus, for the greatest good of His people, then I'm sure you can trust Him for any lesser evil. The nasty boss, the difficult co-worker, the challenging family member. He's at work behind the scenes, pruning, shaping you. For your good. Caiaphas unwittingly testifies to the truth of the gospel. About 30 years ago, in 1990, archaeologists were doing a dig not far from Jerusalem. And they came across a handful of different ossuaries. An ossuary was something that was popular between 20 BC and about 70 AD. Sometimes they're called bone boxes. And what would happen is after they would bury somebody, after some years in which the body had decayed entirely and all that was left was bones, they would take the remains, those bones of that person who had died, and they would put them in a box and store them. Well, these archaeologists were doing this dig and they they came across this elaborate ossuary that they, they suspected that this must be a very important person in their bones in this box. And sure enough, as they cleaned off the side of the box, it said Joseph Caiaphas. So that Joseph Caiaphas unwittingly in his life testified to the truth of the gospel that one man would die for the nation and for the scattered children of God, but also in his death he testifies to the record of the gospel through his bones. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, You always win. What fools we are to fight against You. But Lord, help us not only to lay down our weapons, but to trust You because You are good. 
You are good in all Your ways. And Lord, we don't understand all that You're doing behind the scenes through the wicked choices of others, but Lord, we can rest assured that Your plan goes exactly as You intend and You are good. And so Lord, help us to trust in You. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to close by singing How Great is Our God.